Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory from the Relevant Radio app. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. It's good to be back. Controversial topics ahead today. Uh, I think that these are topics worthy of discussing at a time where there's polarization in terms of the secular culture, as well as opinions with regard to how the LGBTQ issue should be handled within the church. So we're going to talk about a place in the church for people who identify as some form of LGBTQ with licensed and marriage family therapist Michael Gasparro. We'll also dive into an interesting topic when we're talking about um, same-sex attraction, all of that. I've heard from many men over the last handful of years, and statistics point to a trend uh, that many men who are straight, are finding themselves wondering why they find themselves looking at gay pornography. No, it's kind of a controversial and uh, dicey topic, but I think it's one worthy of understanding what's happening on the level of the brain chemistry and what's happening in terms of kind of the snowball effect with regard to the engagement with pornography and how far it goes. So many people who said, I thought it was just here and then. I knew it was something I was struggling with. Next thing you know, it was frequent occurrences and types of pornography I never could have imagined myself looking at. Uh, And so we want to talk about real solutions, hope, healing, especially from the perspective of our Catholic faith. So fundamental today in our conversation is the important role of the Eucharist and confession. Going to confession, we're here right smack in the latter half of Lent. It's an important topic to dive into. Also, Interesting study I want to come back to. It's been a little while since we've talked about it, but the tie to endocrine disruptors and much of the crises we're experiencing today from infertility to even the whole transgender debate. So if you want to learn more about that, stay with me. You're listening to Trending with Timory here on Relevant Radio. Uh, today, joining me will be licensed marriage and family therapist Michael Gasparro. And we're going to dive into, in just a little bit, the controversy in the culture right now surrounding how to handle um, differences of opinion within the church, especially with regard to uh, the fact that some people will argue that the Catholic Church has honed in too much on what we would argue to be sexual morality, right? The morality of what we do with our bodies. Now, we've known that, especially in the last number of apparitions of the Blessed Virgin Mary, she's pointed to, in particular, discussing the impact that our carnal sins, the things that we do with our bodies, um, how that is directly connected to the impact of our eternal souls. Will we go to heaven? Will we go to hell? And something that had always really shaken me up when I've learned about the beautiful image of Our Lady of Fatima is when you actually read about the visionaries and what they saw, uh, Jacinto, Lucia, uh, you know, to kind of like start to un- 
unpack these three uh, visionaries, something that they spoke of that always astounded me were the visions of hell that they had and how they spoke to how important Our Lady discussed what we do with our bodies matters and how so many people don't realize uh, the impact of the choices we make. You know, we live at a time in the 21st century, in 2023, uh, where we hear a lot of arguments such as my body, my choice. And that goes all the way to the extreme of abortion and the killing of babies uh, via quote unquote choice, which we know isn't a choice, uh, to the private decisions people make in their bedrooms. And many people say the church should get out of my business and the church should welcome me and I should have the ability to fully participate in the life of the church without any interference in terms of how I live my life. And so here we are steeped in the midst of a great controversy, even within the church. Some people, even leaders within the Catholic Church, uh, saying that maybe we need to take a softer approach to the LGBTQ crisis or any number of issues having to do again with our carnal choices and carnal desires and how that fits into our Catholic faith. So joining me now to discuss is Catholic licensed and marriage family therapist, Michael Gasparro. He's on the front line of addressing specifically the issue of same-sex attraction and gender dysphoria. Uh, he specializes in working with this populace, and he has his own personal story he shared as well here on Trending before. Uh, Michael, I want to talk about this whole idea of having a place in the church when, you know, all of us at certain times struggle to live that, quote, ideal that the church is calling us to when it calls us to conversion. Welcome back to Trending. Thanks. Man, this is a million-dollar question, especially in the West, but I think around the, the world, we're all trying to figure out how can we include all people? How can we make at the center of our conversation those who are marginalized and really advocate for them, but also retain our Catholic identity and not soften our ideal vision of a beautiful life that God is inviting us to? And that's, that's where the, these tensions really start to emerge, I think. And I think there is a controversy and then a legitimate concern and then a theological debate occurring. The controversy is the stance of the Catholic Church holds on LGBTQ issues. The stance the church holds isn't going to change. Um, people may try to want to change, you know, whether or not something is a sin or not. That's not going to change. But I think there is a legitimate concern, no matter how often people try to debate the moral theology of of those actions, there is concern, and I think it's legitimate, that everyone has a place of being welcomed um, and invited uh, in the church and um, not feeling like they're the only ones with a target on their back. And I think mm -hmm. that's important. And I think that, you know, in the midst of that conversation, there's some legitimate topics that need to be discussed. And I get it when some people say, man, you know, their particular sins, let's, you know, specifically addressing the sexual moral life, LGBTQ issues, divorce, um, you know, what used to be called shacking up, you know, I'm told not to call it that because it's not the way to refer to it today, uh, <laughs> but living together uh, that, you know, some people, even who are single parents, uh, feel singled out, like they don't have a place per se in the church. But what needs to be discussed is I think that we've fallen away in the church from this whole idea overall that we're all called to conversion. And in a certain respect, we all have targets on our back that, back that in our own way, we are struggling and suffering with sin. Um, just certain sins are more prevalent in our modern day culture today. 
Yeah, and I think one interesting angle to the controversy around this, like you're talking about with regard to inclusion and what does it mean for participation, let's talk particularly about at Mass because a lot of this controversy centers around how do people get included in, and feel included or uh, are encouraged to be partaking in the Eucharist. I think it is worthy to worth noting I saw, I believe it was a Gallup poll, don't quote me, Tim Marie, but it was a couple years ago. It was a Gallup poll or Pew Research Center poll. It was one of the major polling organizations that said 13% of uh, weekly mass attending Catholics agreed with the church teaching on contraception. So that was already 13% of, was a subset of, I mean, that's weekly mass attending Catholics. It's already a smaller percentage of Catholics in the United States. And only 13% of those agreed with the church teaching on contraception. So a very, mm. an embarrassingly small percentage of Catholics agree with the church teaching on contraception. And we don't have like some kind of metal detector or, or contraception detector. We're asking everyone in the church to walk through to see whether or not they can take the Eucharist. So I, I can empathize when leaders in the church who are more shouting for the word is inclusion of LGBT members of our community in the Eucharistic uh, life of the church, I can empathize with them saying, you know, like, where is all the out outcry over the entire, almost the entirety of the American Catholic population who is also participating likely in grave violations against the church teaching around, around sexuality. Why is nobody talking about that? Why is nobody mm -hmm. saying anything about that? And why are we singling out men and women with same sex issues for whether or not they're worthy to participate in the Eucharist. So to his, uh, not just one person, but leaders in the church's point on inclusion, really, I keep coming back to this idea that comes to my mind, Tim Marie, is why are we not each more focused on ourselves? So why can't I say, like, what is my own struggle con and my own issue with my conscience that is maybe why I need to come to the Lord with humility about the Eucharist as opposed to everyone else's particular issues. Yeah, and I want to incorporate the LGBTQ side, but I'd like that you're focusing on that, Michael, for a moment here. here. And if you're just joining us, you're listening to Trending with Tim Marie. That's licensed marriage and family therapist, Catholic therapist, Michael Gasparro, who's on the front line, especially addressing the issue of same-sex attraction and gender dysphoria. Uh, much of the debate today, Michael, about um, church leaders talking about whether or not someone should receive communion or not, um, comes back to this fundamental idea that all of us all of us are invited to the Catholic Church, but all of us have this responsibility, this culpability um, to really look at how we are alienating ourselves from the life of the church and that authority with which God is calling us to live by and to follow in his authority. And when you bring it back to the Eucharist, I think the debate is really, I think, is due to the fact that so many people don't believe in the true presence of our Lord Jesus Christ in the Eucharist, mm. that to many people, I think it's not very significant. And out of a culture of respect for God, but also respect for what the Catholic Church teaches, that Jesus Christ truly is present, body, blood, soul, and divinity, there's a lot for us to ponder. And there's a difference between us showing up at church and knowing that we belong, we are welcomed, and a difference between that and humbly recognizing that we're called to receive the grace of the sacrament of confession before we demand the grace of Holy Communion at Mass. So we have to prepare ourselves, right, to go to the wedding banquet, to go to the Eucharistic celebration, 
and not just assume any of us that we're just worthy. And I think that that's the problem. One, we don't believe enough people don't believe in the church's teaching that Jesus Christ is truly present. And many of us fail to receive our Lord Jesus Christ uh, with regard to having been cleansed and purified by the grace of the sacrament of confession. And I think part of this is also a bigger picture discussion around how do we catechize ourselves and how do we help how do we help learn about our faith individually and then also how do we correct mass confusion amongst the catholic populace in general because this is this is a very known issue as well you you just highlighted the aspect about the real presence i'm talking about contraception but these are major areas of significant concern with catholic teaching not because we're fussy and we just want to get into people's business but because the church is something important and beautiful to say, which we can also discern through our own eyes and ears, through through our observation of natural moral law. So why? What, that's the big thing I keep coming back to during this conversation. Why does it matter? And I think it, it matters. The conversation is important because God is something really special he's inviting us into. And I think it's important to talk about it so we can try to find pathways for people to come back to the Eucharist, not just to say who shouldn't be participating but we have to broaden our discussion beyond just what person in this particular group does or does not deserve to participate in the Eucharist. More that deeper question you're asking, Timory, which is what is the nature and purpose of the sacrament? How can we all be more inclined towards approaching it with an open heart and humility? And I think that will get us to a better starting place than pointing fingers at which group is more or less worthy to receive. Right. And bringing it back to the topic of, again, whether or not someone who's living an LGBTQ lifestyle should receive our Lord Jesus Christ in the Eucharist, there's a difference, and you and I have talked a lot about this, between a tendency, a, a desire, a temptation, and an action, right? And that's why I don't like this whole idea of calling someone gay or calling someone transgender, um, you know, experiencing transgender tendencies or living a same-sex lifestyle, right? Like, that's a choice. A gay lifestyle is a choice. It's not an identity. A transgender um, transgender quote-unquote identity is not an identity. It's an action of how you present yourself. Uh, and so this, I think, in some ways comes back to this rebellion of especially Americans, Michael, all of us by our fallen human nature, but especially as Americans, this idea of freedom, the idea that freedom is to do anything I want rather than recognizing freedom is for the purpose of doing what we ought. Freedom is for the purpose of a good and not just to be divorced from all that is good, true and beautiful. And it comes back, I think, to a problem with authority, Michael. People look at the Catholic Church and they see authority. They think of, you know, paternity, maternity, uh, patriarchy, right, which are controversial words. Uh, but in a certain respect, it's like an analogy. Um, it's this idea, like, if we're demanding to receive the Eucharist uh, and we are in a state of sin, mortal sin, uh, it's like us demanding from our parents their assets at the end of their life when we never really maintained a respectful relationship with them in their own home. Um, we don't necessarily have a right. Maybe we're unworthy to receive that. Uh, and there's a call for relationship and respect, even though we're still welcome in that home and we're still allowed to have those gifts from those parents. And I think, you know, the analogy is so imperfect, but it gives a little bit of an example where we kind of have this take mentality and we reject any sense of authority, authority or accountability. I also would like to say that one of the reasons this 
matters to me personally is that I think it's not so much about whether or not, and, and this is, we have maybe slightly different angles we're coming from here, Timory, but for me, it's not so much important as to prove to somebody else why they should go to confession first or do something different in order to, to come to communion, but asking them, what barriers in your life are you holding on to? What are you attached to that may be limiting how much God wants to pour his love into your heart? What things are you holding on to that God may be inviting you to let go of? But I will say that for everybody, especially with things as sensitive as sexuality, there are often a lot of defenses and a lot of fear that we're holding on to. So grace acts progressively in our lives. And one caution I have for, let's say, the more conservative movement of the church is to not presume that we can know everything that's happening in somebody's lives that is contributing to why they're attached to that thing, whether it's sexuality or money or other issues, because we can't know the totality of someone's experiences or their background that makes that particular sin very difficult for them to let go of or to bring God into that place and, and, and receive the freedom he's offering them. And it brings me to that idea. I know, you know, you're emphasizing the importance of understanding we don't know all the details in this particular person's life. And I agree with that. I can especially speak to, you know, the challenge within my own family of having multiple, numerous family members who have been living for your same-sex lifestyles while still trying to um, live out their Catholic faith at the same time. And I don't know all the details of those circumstances and scenarios. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, you know, being close in terms of being a family member, there are things you know and you have compassion and understanding. Does that validate the actions in which they're choosing to live out? No, but can it mean that we have compassion and understanding? Yes. And should it mean that we always have that invitation open? Yes. And I think that that's the challenge that you're pointing to of, okay, make the doors open, allow people to show up, but don't just assume you fully understand their situation, but also don't be afraid to have that call to conversion that all of us need. I need that, Michael. Yeah, well, me too. And there's a difference between, it's sort of like in the public health sector when they do things called risk reduction. And at times when we do risk reduction, it reminds me of this term inclusion, where there is at some point a good to reducing risk, and yet it gets lost in the bigger context of there, there being an abandonment of any sense of ideal. And so I think for inclusion, we can discuss the nuances of pastoral accompaniment and inclusion and what that looks like for each family or person. But we shouldn't, because of that, be afraid to, or even be tempted to abandon an ideal because the ideal that the church presents, and by the way, that nature reveals to us and divine revelation confirms and extends beyond our understanding naturally, is for our good. It's not an imposition, it's a proposition. The truth does not have to impose itself. It proposes itself and it moves our heart and our mind towards its own beauty and goodness in our lives. So I, I want to be clear that when I say inclusion is a good thing, I don't mean to the abandonment of proposing an ideal. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned something such as pastoral guidance, which is, you know, theological uh, speaking conversation about the importance of our pastors, right? Our, our priests guiding and being very welcoming and encouraging and fostering those relationships and guidance. But some people are debating within the church right now um, that in the midst of having those relationships, you should only listen and that you shouldn't seek to quote unquote convince uh, people to any other idea. And I think that that's at the heart of what's so wrong is that these relationships are so important. And this idea of come as you are is important. 
But we can't, like you said, throw out this beautiful call of the church to conversion. I mean, these are some of the very first words of our Lord Jesus Christ to repent and to believe in the gospel. You know, people accused him um, of doing something so scandalous for eating with tax, tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes. Uh, but he came to save sinners. And we shouldn't be so fair like the Pharisees in rejecting the fact that God's grace is for everyone and that God's mission, Jesus Christ himself, was to call everyone to repentance and conversion. And it's a conversion of heart and mind. And by the way, we say it at Mass, the words of, of everyone's mouth are, Lord, I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof, but you say the word alone and my soul shall be healed. So everyone, in, in, in essence, at the church is in the same place. We're in the human condition, and we're in need of God's mercy and grace. Some people, according to the, my understanding of our church's teaching, are invited to perhaps go to the sacrament of confession to better prepare their heart and mind to be in a state of a dispositional state to receive the Eucharist. But it's not because they're a different category of person. We're all part of this human family in need of God's mercy. And by the way, when we talk about inclusion, I will stand up and say kind of boldly here without naming names that that goes both directions because I have seen too often that I'm willing and I think it's important that we say this to have discussion around how do we include people, but that means there should be listening in both directions. And so it should not be that people who have a more traditional view on Catholic morality get silenced for this conversation, but rather we try to listen in both ways to each other. And you mentioned a moment ago, you know, the role of when we're about to receive confusion, when we're about to receive communion, Lord, I'm not worried that you should enter under my roof, but only say the word, my soul shall be healed. Um, God is so good in the construction, even of mass itself, you know, having the confidior, that penitential prayer, when we say through our fault, through my fault, through my most grievous fault, therefore I ask brothers and sisters, right? We turn to our brothers and sisters asking that forgiveness, but asking God's forgiveness. And we have this responsibility to ask our neighbor's forgiveness, to ask God though for his forgiveness and his mercy. Like the whole mass is designed to fill us with that grace so that we can become vessels of God's grace in the culture. Um, and in the church itself to be united with him like conversion is so important humility is so important i think that again that whole i think problem is sometimes we come to church demanding communion without the hum humility to first receive the grace of confession uh, that we all need. And here we are right smack in the middle of Lent, prepared and able and worthy to do that. And I appreciate, Michael, your candidness that as you know, some church leaders are in the midst of this debate over you know the, p the position of sin within our culture, especially carnal sin in our culture and the whole LGBTQ uh, crisis that we're in in 2023, that we have these conversations and we don't turn into this uh, absolute adoption of a person's lifestyle, but we also don't turn into a rejection of a human being either, that we're called to love and invite people into conversion. And that's difficult. You know, I think about St. Mother Teresa herself, Michael, and how she went into 
the the sickest, poorest areas out of love, not asking whether they were worthy to receive care and love and mercy and treatment, but she was willing to get her hands dirty, you know, to, to reach down and care for the sick and the poor and those in need. And we have that responsibility to follow the story in the lives of the saints and doing the same. You're listening to Trending with Timory here on Relevant Radio. That's licensed marriage and family therapist Michael Gasparro here with me on Trending. We're going to come back talking about a dicey topic. Uh, many men have reached out and it's interesting to see I think this crisis occurring in the culture of pornography, but many straight men saying, why do I find myself suddenly looking at gay porn, but I'm straight? We'll talk about that in a moment with licensed marriage and family therapist, Michael Gasparro. You're listening to Trending with Timory, where you can discuss what matters most to you. Join the conversation, 888-914-9149. on the topic of contraception. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, so hot topics today. This is the day we've been talking about LGBT, the LGBTQ crisis and how to reconcile that in the context of the church. I know I have family members. Um, I have friends who have lived out same-sex lifestyles, who have struggled with gender dysphoria. Um, there's no singling out. These are important topics that we want to dive into and talk about, especially from the perspective of the Catholic Church. Joining me now is licensed marriage and family therapist Michael Gasparro. This is probably next few minutes, maybe a topic that will just give a little bit of a little ears warning. A lot of men have been writing to me on this topic, and it's a trend that people are experiencing, but not a lot of people want to talk about out loud. And it has to do with the crisis of porn in our culture. Vast majority of men look at pornography today and a growing and high number of women. First time exposure to pornography on average is really between the ages of eight and 10 years old. I've count talked I've talked to so many men who have shared with me that their pornography uh, struggle began around 8 or 10 years old and it turned into an addiction as the years went on. I've talked to so many women who have said, it feels so wrong that I'm looking at pornography, especially as a woman, something so off um, about it, but you know, no one's really talking about this. Well, Let's talk about that. I want to throw out that resource, integrityrestored.org. If you're struggling with pornography and want to take back your sexual integrity, integrityrestored.org is a great resource. But one question I really want to address today, and again, little ears warning, with licensed marriage and family therapist Michael Gasparro, is a question I've been asked many times, Michael, and I will throw this question to you because it's been asked by listeners. I am a straight man. I'm married. I have children. Why am I looking at gay pornography today? I'd like to unpack some of the psychology of what's happening. If you could help us to start unraveling this, Michael, I think there are a lot of men today who really, I think, benefit from this conversation. Well, when men look at images online, they're looking for things that could help trigger some kind of emotional response. And so one of the things I like to look for with clients and in general in the conversations I'm a part of in professional organizations about pornography use is thinking about pornography use as more than just a sexual outlet, but thinking about it as some kind of compensation for emotional dysregulation or stress or procrastination. So that way we don't get tempted as quickly to categorize our sexuality by the images we look at or even maybe excuse it as just being 
a part of our biology that we need to look at pornography. That'd be one starting place, and we can jump further into that from, from there. Okay, you covered so many important things right now that are important. I just want to highlight three things that you said for those who are with us here. Um, one, understanding that we look at images um, online, pornographic images, um, to trigger emotional responses in our bodies as a distraction maybe from something else. Um, you didn't mention, but I'll throw in there just the triggering of that uh, mental cocktail in our brains. It's released the serotonin, the dopamine, the oxytocin, um, all of these chemicals that give us a sense of pleasure that helps to, you know, regulate our emotions a certain respect, which is why many people turn to it. But you, I think, just hit the nail on the head that when we look at something that is so outrageous and so extreme as pornography and different types of pornography that we found shocking and not part of our normal life. And maybe you're at the point of gay pornography, your child pornography, as horrific as that is, that you're not quick to categorize that as your new sexual identity or proclivity. Can you, uh, can you drill down on that a little bit more? Well, with regard, first of all, to same-sex images, since that's where this conversation has started for today, a lot of people seek images online to trigger an emotional response, like you just said. So for some people, there's different theories, but one theory is polyvagal theory, that different parts of the brain are in a state of stress or heightened fight or flight response, and that sexualized images release that flood of neurochemicals, neurotransmitters like you're talking about, like dopamine and serotonin, to help restore a sense of equilibrium in our brain and in our body, therefore we feel more relaxed or relieved. And in this regard, the first images, we come, become less rewarded by them. So if a man has, you know, predominantly opposite sex attraction, Timory, it may be that at first the images of women or the images of men and women together are triggering a strong, let's say 10 out of 10 dopamine response or serotonin response in the brain. But as we gain tolerance, to certain images, we get less reward for the same input. So whereas before one quarter gave us one gumball, now three quarters are required to give us one gumball. This is how addiction works. It creates tolerance to the same stimuli. And then we need heightened stimuli to get the same level of dopamine or serotonin. So one theory, and again, we're not speaking in absolutes here, is that as men become accustomed to certain images, they seek more extreme images that are more taboo and might trigger a heightened response that they used to get from their entry-level images. And this is one theory as to why some men with predominantly opposite-sex arousal are drawn towards more extreme images like same-sex pornography as they continue developing a tolerance and an addictive pattern with this type of response. And maybe you're sitting here going, but I thought I was the only one. You're not the only one. There's a study as far back as seven years ago in 2016, a report published in the Archives of Sexual Behavior that showed that one in five straight men look at gay pornography. Now, that was seven years ago. Michael, the pornography crisis, I would argue, has only gotten much worse since then. And it's not people outside of the church. It's people in the church. We were talking earlier about, you know, there being a place for all of us called to the church, called to conversion though, um, that there are these things that, man, we're struggling with as a culture. I mentioned earlier, Michael, um, Our Lady of Fatima and how often she talked about sins of the flesh uh, getting in the way of our salvation today. And that's why we want to talk about it because I think sometimes people feel isolated, whether it's the LGBTQ crisis 
or maybe gay pornography, that they isolate themselves, they feel judged, they feel separated because they're not living that ideal that we're all called to, but that we all fall short of, which is why we need God's grace. Uh, but that number, Michael, one in five straight men looking at gay pornography, you explained the fact that tolerance to the stimuli of pornography um, requires us to seek out more and more shocking things, things that people jump to where, again, the topic of straight men turning to this, to um, same-sex oriented contact content is overwhelming and it's that need for that dopamine rush so if a man is finding himself turning to extreme forms of these types of images online what should he do to really work on reeling that back and um, I'll ask a follow-up question after that one important angle as we didn't talk about yet is that we touched on it briefly a little bit that what you are finding erotically triggering in an image does not define your identity or even necessarily mean that you would like to enact that in real life. And so I remember I had friends from my teen years and in early twenties that were predominantly attracted to women. And a good friend of mine had told me that he found himself looking at these same sex pornographic images and he started to question his sexual identity when actually for this person, it was really a masculine insecurity triggered in his view, at least, this temptation to look at same-sex images to try to better understand how he related to men in the images he was seeing. So aside from just the dopamine and transmitters and the more neurochemical-based view or lens we're looking through, I would also like to encourage the possibility of another angle, which is there is a crisis often in our culture. We talk about this masculinity crisis. And so as young boys or emerging adult men start to have insecurities about their sexual identity as a man, they may find that those insecurities become types of proclivities that they seek images to resolve. And these same-sex images might be a way they're trying to resolve those insecurities of masculinity. Not to mention, Timory, I've heard experts on this topic talk about how the most visible signs of arousal and images are often the male body because of how the body is. And so men can relate to that and sometimes find their eyes drawn to those parts of the body to help them relate to the images they're seeing. So some of this is tolerance neurochemically. Some of it may be conditioning, what we call behavioral conditioning. And some of it may be masculine insecurity for heterosexual, straight-oriented men that are seeking these images as a ways of trying to reduce their insecurities as a male. Mm-hmm. And build up that masculinity because we live, as you mentioned, in this crisis in our, ma- in our culture of masculinity, what does it mean to be a man? Well, is that what it means to be a man? I mean, this type of man, this type of body, body type, type, shape, all of that. I think that we've become so visually stimulated that instead of saying, how can I be a man? Instead, we're saying, what looks like a man? And I think that's a real part of the crisis mm. in our modern day culture. Yeah, and you are a man irrespective of what images you look at. And so when you find somebody that struggles with this, the first thing you said, how do we help men? Help them know that the fact that you've you've fallen down a rabbit hole and you've chosen to go down a path to look at same-sex sexual images does not make you gay. And I would encourage recommending them bring their, their despair or their distress around this to a close friend or pastoral support from their priest so that they're not in shame and hiding and in isolation because shame and isolation only cause these wounds and insecurities to fester. So that'd be the first step is don't go through this alone. Two, you don't have to identify your sexual identity based on this struggle. And three, if you're struggling with this, 
just be curious as a starting point. I wonder why these images are doing something emotionally gratifying for me. And can I find a better way to address and a more authentic way to address this need? If, uh, for instance, the need is feeling connected and, and grounded in my masculine identity, can I join a jujitsu gym? Is there a need to have a better friendship circle in my life? So what's the healthy underlying need that you're not getting met that same-sex images might be trying to fill in your life that are not it's just fantasy it's not actually giving you anything and i think all of this it touches on all of our sexuality as a whole and that crisis that is being experienced in the culture of so many people i mean i know within the church not just outside the church within the church who want to live chastely but they struggle to live chastely you know just like saint paul saint paul talked about you know he does the very things he doesn't want to do in this uh painful journey the mortification in the flesh that denial of our sinful tendencies right our, that denial um that i think is so easy to brush aside of the fact that we have a fallen human nature instead embrace yes i do have a fallen human nature that's why i need god's grace and so as we talk about these practical things such as you talked about joining a gym, you know, doing Brazilian things like Brazilian jiu-jitsu, um, engaging in better friendships, you know, dis not distracting, but reorienting the mind that that can help in healing why this direction is occurring to begin with. Uh, one thing I want to touch on, if you're just joining us, that's licensed marriage and family therapist, Michael Gasparro. Michael, um, one of the studies that when it was looking at the fact that um, one in five men today are uh, straight men today are looking at gay porn. It also cited in the same study I've been referencing that 55% of men today, or sorry, 64% of men um, who are prescribed porn addicts say they now look at things that are revolting or disgusting to them. So six out of 10 men are saying the type of content they're looking at is revolting to them. And it brings to mind this conversation we hear a lot about of quote, sexual fluidity. And people say, well, because you've had exposure to other types of images and ways of engaging, that suddenly you now find yourself to be fluid and you can swing in multiple directions. And that's just okay. But as you've discussed before in your work, that for some reason people want to say, okay, well, you started to look at these images and now you're taking yourself in a different orientation. But why can't you come back to that original orientation of the male-female complementarity? Can you talk a little bit about that? And not only is fluidity research and documented by secular therapists and psychologists, but Catholics are having this conversation as well. And what you're highlighting is that the hypocritical view that fluidity is allowed to occur towards the direction of same-sex sexuality, but is somehow considered unethical or strange or backward if it goes more towards the natural complementarity of sex between men and women with the only kind of authentic sexual intercourse that there is. And I, I think it's really good that we're highlighting this conversation because I know, let's just take it out of the uh, idea realm and more into the practical, tangible realm. I have many friends and clients who have struggled with same-sex sexualized attachments, whether those are feelings, thoughts, behaviors, identity. And as they continue both to convert their life and heart according to God's grace in their lives and to address underlying psychological issues, they find that fluidity for them means more openness and receptivity towards the complementarity of them with the opposite sex. I know I was just talking with a, a dear friend yesterday who sent me a message through WhatsApp saying, we've got to tell more people. And she's an ex-lesbian identified woman married to a man who is an ex-gay identified man with two beautiful children and a thriving family life. 
And so these stories are real. These people are real. This is a, this is a story of hope and encouragement. And the church has got to paint a beautiful vision, not just saying, don't do this, don't do that, but saying, look at this beautiful alternative to help draw people's eyes towards the fluidity, as in quotes, that really leads us to flourishing. Fluidity should lead to flourishing. Michael, I so appreciate your take on this issue and for you being on the front line of addressing the crisis in our culture of everything surrounding the LGBTQ identity. If you want to find Michael, he's a licensed marriage and family therapist. Um, We'll post a link to him. You can find him at catholictherapist.com along with other excellent Catholic therapists and some resources on this specific topic. If you find yourself looking at this content and you said, wow, I didn't know how I got here. Um, there's a link to an episode on dopamine detox that we're posting in the episode notes. I find those at relevantradio.com. So, you know, dopamine, we talked about plays a big role in this and sometimes we're addicted to the amount of dopamine we're turning toward. So there's that dopamine detox episode. Um, remember that the brain is resettable and self-healing and therapy and these resources are so helpful. If you find yourself at this point saying, why and why me? And I thought I was the only one, but you're not. And God's grace is enough. Rely on him, turn to him run to him in the sacrament of reconciliation and if you or a loved one is struggling with pornography be sure to check out the great resource integrityrestored.org that's integrityrestored.org we'll post the link on social media as well as on the show notes thanks so much licensed marriage and family therapist michael gasparro we'll be right back talking about this transgender crisis and its connection to contraception You're listening to Trending with Timory, where you can discuss what matters most to you. Join the conversation, 888-914-9149. You're listening to Trending with Timory. Okay, so we've been talking a lot about contraception recently, especially in light of what's happening with Roe versus Wade being overturned in the individual states fighting it out over whether or not each state will be a pro-life state, protecting the lives of women, the bodies of women, and the lives of babies, or whether that state will push for the radical endorsement of abortion through all nine months of a woman's pregnancy. But at the same time, there's a push to make sure that in no way whatsoever, access to hormonal contraception is lost in any way. Now, Michael Gasparro was here with us earlier on trending. He was talking about how even the majority of Catholics um, are okay with hormonal contraception. No big deal. And it always fascinates me because time and time again, we hear these studies of how detrimental it is for our bodies as women. I was talking even just on my last uh, Friday episode of Trending, I was talking about how yet again, we had another study come out confirming the link between breast cancer and the use of hormonal contraception. So if you missed that episode, we'll post a link in the episode notes as well as on social media. Uh, But here's a study that maybe you haven't heard of because I've heard a lot of questions, people saying, wow, look at the fallout of contraception and how it's causing breast cancer, how it's causing blood clotting, so many issues for our bodies as women. But here's what's fascinating. And I want to kind of start by really pondering for a moment what the church teaches about hormonal, hormonal contraception and see what's happened when we have chemically nuked our bodies with hormonal contraceptives, synthetic hormones damaging our bodies. Um, We have completely blown off what the Catholic Church has taught, that every act of sexual intimacy is meant to be unitive for the good of the spouses and procreative, so open to human life and new life that may come. And we've completely thrown that out. 
Many people within the church have ignored what the church teaches. Our society doesn't care. And it's the it's what we use in order to basically do what we want with our bodies for quote-unquote equality, according to many people today. But the fallout has been so significant. The damages in terms of interpersonal relationships outside of marriage, within marriage, the fact that studies are pointing to the fact that when a woman comes off of contraception, she's married and suddenly wants to have a child, that she no longer finds her spouse attractive because her body was in a different state in terms of how it related to people of the opposite sex with the pheromones functioning in her body. So she looked for someone that she wouldn't normally look for as a partner. And when she finds herself wanting to have a baby and no longer on all those hormones, her pheromones change, hormones change, and she no longer finds that level of complementarity. The crisis is real, but have you ever pondered the fact that the pheromone crisis and how we've used all of these endocrine disruptors in our bodies might also be impacting the crisis of transgenderism in our culture too. In particular, if you just ponder the fact that the large majority over the last 20 or so years of people identifying as transgender, especially in the last five years, have been young teenage and young adolescent girls, the majority of whom are on hormonal contraceptives, the majority of whom, therefore, have massive endocrine disruptors impacting their body. Well, there have been a number of studies over that last handful of years studying the impact of fish and their use of hormonal contraception. Now, this sounds a little outlandish for some who have never heard of this before, but a study was done on Boulder, Colorado. Uh, coming out of some of the schools there in Colorado, their studies have come out of France as well, on the fact that we have a significant amount of pharmaceutical drugs in our water system today. In particular, with the widespread use, one of the most common used uh, drugs today of hormonal contraception, these synthetic versions of progesterone and, and estrogen. Now, what's interesting is that a lot of these studies have talked about how uh, the repetitive use of hormonal contraception is leading to infertility in fish or um, less fertility than is normal for fish. But another part of the study that's fascinating, and I'll post a link to some of this as well on social media, is how household pharmaceutical drugs uh, going through the drains in our homes and contraception being flushed, whether it's through the sloughing off of what's not used by the body when we use the restroom or just by pills being flushed as well, that these are actually causing these pills and even things such as cleaning agents and plastics and cosmetics, all of which are endocrine disruptors, as we know very clearly. I don't think anyone disagrees with this today. The research is out there. Uh, that's why we use hormonal contraception for what we do. And that's why people are converting from plastic to glass or plastic to cornware. And there's so much we could discuss there. But what's fascinating is that in 2010, Washington, D.C.-based Potomac Conservatory found that over 80% of male bass fish in, in the river there displayed female traits. So what happened in the research from the study and it's really interesting is that they were seen from the chemicals within the fish and the overall health of the fish, the things never expected were occurring. One, they were recognizing that they were actually creating through the impact of all of these chemicals, 
transgenic fish that allows us to see responses to these chemicals in the bodies of fish in real time. So things such as the fact that the estrogen has significantly been impacting the effect of the valves in the heart of the fish, that the offspring of these fish that are exposed to the endocrine disruptors, including hormonal contraception and the endocrine disruptors from plastic, that the offspring of these fish, even multiple generations removed from the exposure to such water, is actually they're being rendered infertile, their fertility is being impacted, the sperm quality is reducing, or there's a lower sperm quality, um, fewer eggs are being produced by the female fish. Uh, even they're seen in the male fish that there's a less aggressive and competitive behavior with the male fish in the food chain and that they're not surviving even among their predators the way that they used to. It's changed mating pan patterns. It's absolutely fascinating to see what's happened to these fish. But isn't it interesting that we can look at the science and the data at how endocrine disruptors are impacting fish, but we aren't willing to see the connection for how it's impacting our bodies as men and women, especially with the crisis of infertility today or decreased fertility, especially with the crisis of decreased testosterone for men, decreased sperm quality and sperm count the reduced production of eggs and egg quality for women, the fact that men are being canceled today for being men and that many men are struggling with their masculinity. Have we ever pondered the fact that the things that we are taking into our bodies as endocrine disruptors are impacting the future generations through our own bodily use, but also through its impact on our water? It's really fascinating, but all of this comes back to the fact that the church has held and told the line on the use of hormonal contraception, being damaging for the individual, damaging for the soul, taking even at times the life of human children when it functions as an abortifacient. But it, here's the good news. As Catholics, we can preach the fact that it's not just good for your soul, but it's a holistic and healthy approach for your body not to use it. This is Timory from Trending with Timory. We had a school massacre taking the lives of six people. Wednesday, I'll be joined by Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman, who wrote the book Assassination Generation. He's one of the top law enforcement trainers in the nation, and he can speak keenly into the crisis of school massacres, what's happening in our culture with our youth, and the connection to the identity crisis. So join me Wednesday, 6 p.m. Central on Relevant Radio.